Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28, if you want to turn near in your Bible. The title of today's message is Chosen. And we've been talking a lot about Chosen lately with watching the movies, and we're going to kind of branch off that a little bit and talk about how we are all chosen of God. I was preparing this message, I was reminded of an incident I had in the military. A lot of my illustrations come from the military because I think it was just a time that God really showed me a lot of things about life. I was 18 years old um, when I first went in the military, just turned 18, and um, God took a lot of that bad stuff that was going on in my life and used the military to straighten me out a lot. So a lot of my uh, formative stuff comes from there. And after I spent a little bit of time in the infantry, I decided to change MOSs. And I went to mechanic school, and mechanic school, at least at that time in the military, is at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And we took a bus from the reception station to our barracks, and during that, and we had this uh, weird thing happen where all the, the roads around the barracks, the Army decided to chew them all up at the same time and repave them all at the same time. So what happened to us is we had to carry our stuff from the staging area to about three quarters of a mile to a mile all the way to the barracks. And so you're basically moving and carrying everything you own with you to your barracks. So for 19 to 20 year old, that's not a big deal. I mean, we worked up a sweat, but otherwise it was really no factor. Right before we drove over, we were given our room assignments so we knew when we got there. And the other thing that they do is they assign you a battle buddy. And it's, it's part of the military's way of developing teamwork within you. And your battle buddy is the guy that you better get along with because he's going to be stuck to your hip for the next several weeks during the school. And you do everything together. You rise and fall on each other's achievements and you're graded together on some of the more practical issues of what your training might be. And I was fortunate during this time, my battle buddy, his name was Chuck, and on that ride over, we were talking, I discovered that he was actually a mechanic before he ever came into the military, and now he had to go to the, the school to actually become an official mechanic in the military. So I thought, that's great, because I couldn't even tell you what a socket wrench is. Even though my dad was a mechanic, I had no interest in it, and I went to mechanic school so I could learn it. And so, unfortunately, though, one of the consequences of being a battle buddy is you also have to make up for your partner's shortcomings if there's any. In this case, right before he came to training, Chuck had twisted his knee and he was on profile. What profile means, it's a medical limitation of what you can do. And in Chuck's case, he couldn't carry more than 10 pounds or um, walk, march, run for more than 50 yards. So guess what? Guess who got to carry his bag? as well as my own. So we're talking about these big, green, long bags in the military. So I had one on my back, one on my front, with my personal bag that I had to carry three quarters of a mile on the hot South Carolina sun all the way into the barracks. So I'm probably carrying eh, 130 pounds, roughly. I was 150 pounds at the time. I was literally half the man I am now. And so I'm carrying this stuff, and I'm just like, you know, just stumbling through, and of course the drill sergeants are like over the top of you, what's wrong, Private? You get a couple extra pounds and you can't even function in my army? You know, they're, they're yelling at us, and, 
and yawn at, at me, and, and I, was, I was just starting to get mad. I'm like, man, I mean, can't somebody, like, just take even my bag, <laughs> you know, and, and just with theirs? And, I'm, and I just started getting mad. And then, my, and then he just, like, he just kept yelling at me and yelling at me, and I got a little bit of uh, Rocky going in me. You know, I got that little Sylvester Stallone snarl going, and I'm like, okay, fine. And so I just, I kind of just sucked it up because I was falling behind, and I started to run with all this stuff. And I ran past the formation, ran past the barracks we were going to, and by now the drill sergeant's laughing. And he's like, Private, get back over here. You just passed the barracks, dummy. And so <laughs> I got back to the barracks. I'm drenched in sweat. I'm sitting there in formation. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack and die right now. I mean, it's like I'm going to heaven right now because I'm about to die. And I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting for the drill sergeant to come over and start yelling at me for being obstinate and running past the formation, which I deserved. But instead, he called out, PFC Oscar. Drop your stuff. Get up here. So I'm expected, oh, great, now I'm going to have to do push-ups forever or some type of physical activity. They called it smoking, which means they're going to make you do physical activity until you throw up. And so I'm up there, and I'm like, <sighs> and so I'm just waiting for him to say, drop and start pushing, drop and start pushing. And I'm, I'm actually dizzy. I'm a little bit. And all of a sudden, I hear, feel him grab my left arm and put something around it. I'm like, what the heck? And I looked down, and it was a piece of Velcro, black Velcro, with staff sergeant stripes on it. And, I, and he's, like, he's like, hey, Private Oscar is now your platoon leader. He goes, what he says goes. I got promoted for all that instead of smoked. And I was now directly in charge and command of everyone in my platoon for this, the, the duration of that school. He told me I'm supposed to select the squad leaders in the next 24 hours and report back to him who the squad leaders were. I was chosen. Now there were a lot bigger, stronger, and more experienced people in my platoon at that time. There's a lot of prior service people who are changing their MOSs. People like my battle buddy Chuck, who was already a mechanic, but they chose me to be the platoon leader. I was chosen. So today we're going to finish our study on Romans chapter 8. And one of the big ideas that we get from this part of the scripture is the fact that you and I were chosen of God. We were chosen to receive adoption. Chosen to receive forgiveness. Chosen to participate in his kingdom here on earth. And chosen to receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit of the things to come. And with that in mind, we're going to read our scripture for this morning. Sarah, if you want to come up. And again, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to start out in verses 28 and read through, through verse 39. Romans chapter 8, uh, 28 through 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn 
among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you very much, Sarah. Good job. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, Lord, that as we finish our study of Romans chapter 8, that you would place within us this idea and this fact that we are chosen of you for such a time as this. It was not random. It was not an accident. But we are part of your plan and your purpose for this time. Help us to understand that, help us to appreciate that, and help us to learn to live it as we study your word this morning. Lord God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, according to what Paul was saying here, we are chosen based on God's foreknowledge. And there are two basic understandings in the Bible of what it means to be chosen. And much of this... Um, the two basic understandings and the argument that they would have with each other focuses around the word election or to be elected. Now, when we um, use that word, particularly in the season that we're in, we think of somebody being elected as somebody who's running for an office, somebody who has to go out and promise people a bunch of stuff and get them to vote for them so that they can win some type of office um, so that they can serve in that office. But that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word election or elected. A better way of understanding this would be to use that word chosen. So how does God make this choice? How does God decide who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't? Well, there's the big meaty word, the, the big theological word that I'll use this morning for that is called soteriology which is a study of how God saves humanity. The, the steps that he goes through and the, the, what he had to put in place so that God can still be completely holy and still accept a sinful creature like us. And one of the biggest arguments within the church and why so many um, denominations exist within Christianity generally um, revolves around these two 
or around this argument, and they kind of separate themselves into two different camps, if you will. The first camp would say that God simply just made a sovereign choice, that he is God, he gets to decide who gets saved. Now, they never really talk about who doesn't get saved. He just says he decides who gets saved. And if he doesn't pick you, you're doomed. And that's a very, very condensed and very simplified version of what this camp would teach. This camp are the Calvinists, or Calvinism. They, and anybody who might be listening to this that's a Calvinist may say, well, that's not really what we believe, but it is the end result of what they believed. If God doesn't choose you for heaven, then you're doomed. The other camp over here, they would say, yes, God indeed did make a choice. But it wasn't just an arbitrary choice, a choice that we have no idea why he chose this. And he wasn't just necessarily exercising his sovereignty here. It was ba God made his choice based on the, his foreknowledge of who would accept Christ. God created this thing we call time. We don't often think about time as being part of God's creation. We kind of think of it as a byproduct of creation. But it is actually something that God specifically created along with creation. It's, just, it's something that's a little bit separate from creation. And we don't have a tendency to think about it this way, but we've known, we know now through science, and we know even more importantly through the Bible, that time can be sped up, it can be slowed down, it can be warped, it can be stretched, it can be um, stopped even, depending on variables like velocity and gravity, if you want to get into Einstein's theory of relativity. That's about as much as I understand, so I'm not going to try to explain it anymore. But basically, we have proven that that, that, um, that can happen. So God is sovereign over time as its creator, and therefore uses time to pre-know those who will accept salvation. So these are the two different beliefs on how God decides who will be saved. The second one, the one that I was just talking about, is what our fellowship in this church, and even more importantly what I believe the Bible teaches, is that we are chosen based on God's foreknowledge of who would accept his free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. The other, thing, the other way was called Calvinism. We believe in something called Arminianism. So that's the, the boring kind of teaching part of this sermon. Let's get to the practical side of it. Whichever one you decide you want to believe, the fact still remains that you were chosen. God chose you. In verse 28 it says, Now we know that in all things God works for the, the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son. So that leaves the question, what does it mean for us? You so say that's just a grand theological way of looking at it, and that's just an awesome fact to think that, that God chose me, but what does it mean for me on a practical level? What is, what is the benefit of being chosen? Well, going back to my original illustration from the military, being chosen to be the platoon leader, had a certain benefit to it. For one, it looks great on your record. They keep records of this kind of thing. When you go for um, promotions in the higher ranks uh, in the military, especially when you start getting past E5, E6, 
they look back all the way back to basic training. And if you had anything in your file that was positive, that might put you above another soldier that was going for that promotion. The more immediate benefit for me was that in the barracks, I got to have a two-person room, just me and Chuck, instead of a six to ten-person room like the other guys had to stay in. What that means is that Chuck and I came to an agreement. We know we will never, ever wear our boots inside of our room. That kept the, the floor just absolutely sparkling clean so we didn't have to constantly mop it, constantly strip it, constantly rewax it. It kept clean and we didn't have to put as much work in it. So we, that, that really helped us to have more free time. I also got to assign Chuck as the assistant platoon leader. So we were always on the same page to everything. And I got to delegate a lot of things. One of the things I really hated doing in the military is KP. Anybody here in the military ever have to do KP? Absolutely hate KP. That's kitchen police. That means you have to go and wash dishes, essentially. Peel potatoes, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely hated doing KP. So I got to get Chuck to divvy out those duties to everybody else. That was actually one of the benefits. I didn't have to do all that extra stuff. I didn't have to go out and go and police the yard. I didn't have to go out and, and do a lot of these extra duties that they came up with just to make us look busy so that the sergeants didn't get yelled at from the officers. But there are also a few downsides. I was responsible for the actions of every single person in that platoon. And I had a couple of problem children. A couple of people I had to go pick up at the stockade and a couple of people who got in a lot of trouble and I had to stand there right next to them in front of Major General Renner and get yelled at along with them. So I always look at that and say, wow, that was like good pastoral training right there. <laughs> Getting ready to be that responsible for everybody. But being chosen means that you and I also have certain privileges and responsibilities with God. We were chosen to become the adopted sons and daughters of God. And that in itself is an incredible thought. Think about this for a moment. God could have just said, yeah, I need some people to work for me. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of like in southeast Wisconsin, if you need some work done for you, you need some long work or, or something, and you don't want to go hire like an official company, show up at Home Depot. There's always guys standing out there wanting to work for cash for a day. You go pick up one of them and tell them what to do, and they'll do it for you. And, and that He didn't treat us like a day laborer. No, he brought us into his home. He placed upon us the title of his family. We are royalty. We are joint sons and daughters of the king and kings. And therefore, we have all the privileges and responsibilities of that position. And those privileges are listed in verse 30, where it says that those he predestined, he also called. He all also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So let's break that down. We covered predestined a few minutes ago, so let's look at being chosen. You were called or chosen to be a son and daughter of God. Do you remember back in your youth, if you're playing teams of something and you got to be chosen first, how special that made you feel? Well, God loved you so much. He chose you to be a member of His family. And you know what? 
when I look out there at other pastors or I look out there at, at other leaders, I know there are people out there that are more qualified, they're more talented, they're more intelligent, they're more articulate. There's a whole lot of people out there who would be better right here than I would be, but God chose me. And you know what? God chose you for something also. And as a child of the King of Kings, it is up to you to find out what that thing is and to work at it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He chose you. And that fact just by itself should be enough to fill our hearts forever with gratitude. Amen? That, that, that's just like that last song we say where it's your breath in our lungs and we just pour out our praise, God. And after he called you, he also justified you. That word means to be made innocent. You and I, prior to coming to Christ, were under sentence of death. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when you fall short of the glory of God, that means that you are headed to a very warm place. But God made us innocent through the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a great way that the Bible shows us this. In Zechariah chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, let me give you a little bit of backstory to this. The year here that Zechariah is preaching about is about is, uh, 520 B.C. Seventy years prior to this, Israel and Judah, there were two kingdoms of Israel, they split right after Solomon died. Both have been conquered now by Babylon. And when we say conquered, we're talking about wiped off the face of the earth. They came in and, and tore everything down. There was not one stone left upon another. And so Babylon came and, and destroyed that nation. And anyone who survived, most of them had been taken 700 miles away into what is now modern-day Iraq. Toward the end of those 70 years, Babylon was then conquered by Persia. Persia is modern-day Iran. So when you hear Persian rug, that means Iranian rug. They came from Iran. And now God is moving upon the heart of the Persian Emperor Cyrus to allow the Jewish people to return and reclaim their homeland. Joshua was found to be of the lineage of the, of the priests of Levi. And he was chosen to be that first high priest coming back into the land. Now keep in mind there hasn't been a high priest in over 70 years. Two generations, no high priest. There's nobody he can go look to. There's nobody to mentor him. There's nobody to show him exactly how he is going to do this job. The high priest was the most important position within the religious structure of Israel at that time because he was the one that stood before God once a year in the Holy of Holies and offered sacrifice on the mercy seat so that the sins of the people would be washed away. That was under the, the Judaism of that time. And that's what I could imagine that, that Joshua was feeling pretty inadequate about taking on this role. You think you would you feel a little bit of trepidation about this? Well, how do you do this role? I don't know. What'd the last guy do? Whatever the last guy did caused us to be carried off into exile for 70 years, so I wouldn't look to them. This guy is probably nervous, he's probably scared, he's probably feeling completely inadequate 
for what is going to happen here. And so Zechariah gives a prophecy about what was happening within the spiritual realm. And that's what we're going to read about in Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It said, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this man a burning is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Just as a quick aside, the angel there isn't the thing that we're thinking about with a halo and wings. The angel here is the angel of the Lord. In other words, Jesus. He's standing before Jesus right here. The angel said to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And he, the angel, said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments upon you. That's why we know this is Jesus. And then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. Well, the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, says. If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge in my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. What a picture. What a picture. Every time I read this, I realize this is a perfect description of what Jesus did for every single one of us. He did This exact transaction happened in heaven. Satan standing there accusing us. Satan saying, he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's an he's a adulterer, he's a, a pornographer, he's, he, he's got all this sin piled upon him, God. You need to cast him from your presence. And Jesus saying, no, he's mine. I take away all that filth. I take away all that sin. I take away all that, that, that guilt away from him. It's the best description I know of what it means to be justified and redeemed. God has removed those filthy clothes of sin and dressed us in his royal robes and rebuked Satan's influence in our lives. And that's what justified, never, and that's what justified means just as if I had never sinned. And that leads us to the last benefit, and that is glorified. And this is probably one of the hardest ones for Christians to, to want to grasp, because really we should be so grateful to Jesus for everything that he has done for us, that we want all of the glory to go to him, and to him alone. And that's a great way to think. That is the way we should think. But just for a moment, consider this. The Bible plainly says that we are glorified. That means we are elevated to a position of authority and rule by the command of God. In other words, you're royalty. And we have kind of a twisted view of royalty because of that drama show we see in the UK and other kingdoms throughout the earth. But we are royalty in that we are adopted sons and daughters of the king and kings. You bear the name prince and princess. 
because you are indeed just as much of a son of God as, as Jesus, because he adopted us into his family. And guess what? You have a throne of your own that you'll sit on one day. Wow, that's, that's just incredible. In my opinion, I think the number one reason that Christians don't live up to their God-given potential is that they don't live up to their glorification. They don't want to accept it. And I think sometimes we can, we can hide behind a false sense of humility and that we don't want to, to experience it for ourselves. And I'll be honest, it's, this is a hard thing to explain, a hard thing to, to preach about, because I include myself in that. I don't want any attention. I, I, I want all the attention to go to Jesus. I just want to lay at his feet and worship him. But you know what? God is showing me more and more and more. That's not what he's called us to in this point of history. He has called us to step out and walk in this world as the royal people we are. To actually take that responsibility, take that position, and walk boldly before the world, allowing the glory of Christ that shines in us to shine its way through this fallen world. And that brings us to the last part of this message, and that is the promises of being chosen. Let's read a few of those promises. In verse 37 it says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that first promise, you are more than a conqueror. And you may ask yourself, how can you be more than a conqueror? What does that mean? I mean, if you're going to conquer something, you have a threat, you have a problem, you face it, you fight it, you work it out, you defeat it, and then you're done. You have conquered it. We think of, when we think of words like conquerors, we may think John Wayne is a conqueror. Right? He, he went forth, he rode his horse and conquered something in, in one of his movies. Clint Eastwood was a conqueror. He went out, rode his horse, conquered things in the movie. Rambo was a conqueror. Rocky is a conqueror. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's a big conqueror. He beats up everybody, right? That, that's what it means to be a conqueror. And I like, I like that idea because it kind of appeals to my pugnacious nature. I'm, I'm kind of the kind of person that in my natural self, if I don't check my own emotions sometimes, I get into arguments with people and I'll just kind of sit back and say, okay, let's just go, let's go put some gloves on and figure this out. You know, I, I'm kind of, that's my natural nature that God has had to work with me on. But that's not what's being spoken of here. You see, as prince and princesses of the kingdom of God, our default is not necessarily always to fight back in the traditional way, and in an effort to dominate others. That's what we think about when we think about the word conquerors, that we need to dominate others. I found a better way of understanding this verse. As kingdom royalty, we are more than conquerors. A different way of looking at this is that we are transformers of lives and circumstances 
to glorify God even through suffering of love, resulting in converting enemy into friend and threats into opportunity. And it's not about using force to crush an enemy. It's about using love even to the point of suffering and loss in our own life so that others can be elevated. That's what he's meaning by being a conqueror. Being willing to lay ourselves down for others. That's what conquering means in the kingdom. First, we have to conquer our own desires for domination and control or to be seen as always being right. Anybody have that problem? You always have to be right? You're naturally argumentative just for that reason? I am. I'll, I'll admit it. First, we need to conquer our own desires for domination and control and then to sacrifice in order that others may be saved. And that's why Paul predicates this more than conqueror statement. He put a, a clause in there before he said this in Romans 8.35 when he asked, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and this is what he predicates it with, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What is he saying? He's saying lay down your life. That is how you're going to conquer. It's one of the oxymorons of Christianity where the opposite is, seems to be the, the truth instead of what is common sense. That we lay down so others can be elevated by our lives. Jesus didn't come to force people to worship him. Jesus said he could have called upon legions of angels. Legions. Thousands and thousands of angels. It only, take, it only took one angel to wipe out Egypt. He said he could have called thousands of angels to his side, but he didn't. He could have forced humanity to bow down to him. But instead, Jesus came as a servant showing us the way. And that way is this. We are conquerors by showing humility through modeling Jesus to the world. And that is how God's kingdom conquers the kingdom of darkness. The second promise that we can live with is that you are secure. You are secure. Earlier in the message we talked about soteriology. The explanation of God's plan to save us. There's also another side of that, which is how He has to how, how He keeps us saved. Now we said there's two camps. Calvinists would say that once we accept Christ, we're eternally secure. That's it. No matter how you act from that point onward, no matter what kind of lifestyle you lived, you're secure. Your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. You just may be a very disobedient kid, but and ignored Jesus the rest of your life, but you are still saved. An Arminian would say, stay holy or else or you lose your salvation. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> Those are two real huge extremes. So how do we understand a verse that seems, to say, that seems to say we're eternally secure with others that say we need to be watchful, obedient, and busy about the Master's work? One of the ways we understand how we make these two things come together is understanding free will. You see, God doesn't take our ability to make decisions away. He doesn't take away free will at salvation. 
For him, from his perspective, when you bow the knee to Christ, when you surrender to Jesus and make him Lord, God, Savior, and King over your life, you're eternally secure in that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And I think it's written with permanent ink. There's no eraser there. Unless you choose to walk away. God doesn't take away free will. You can choose to walk away. You see, on the Arminian side, we can be a little bit too lackadaisical. I don't want to say lackadaisical. We can be a little too hard on people in that an evangelist can stand up there and say, well, if you had a sin 30, you know, 39 days ago and you forgot to repent, then you're in danger of hellfire. I don't think your salvation is that tenuous. Okay, I think that if you're saved and you're already feeling bad about it, then you're still saved. On the other side, we can't accept this Okay, I, I prayed a prayer when I was nine, and now I'm 39 on 16 drugs and, and drank my liver to death and cussing and, and doing all these other horrible things and thinking that I'm still saved. Salvation is not an on-again, off-again situation, but it is also something that we work toward. The Bible says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I think if you choose to walk away to the point of losing your salvation, you've committed what the Bible calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then you are eternally lost. That's the way I understand it, taking into account the entirety of the Bible. Now we're going to have seasons of being on fire for God. I've gone through those seasons, revival seasons, Wonderful seasons where it just feels like God's presence is washing over you every day. His blessings are pouring out. His presence, you walk into a room and the atmosphere changes because God's presence is, is so upon you. But then sometimes you go into a coasting mode or you go into that valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes you might even go into times of sin where you're apathetic to the things of God. Sometimes those faces last for years. But if you still have your direction toward God, if you still have your heart to, for God to want to work in your life, He is still going to work behind the scenes. He is still going to shape and move things in your life to bring you into His kingdom. As long as you are still wanting to have Him as Lord, God, Savior, and King. So I would encourage you this morning, live according to your station. And your station is, you are a royal child of the King of Kings. As a royal child, you are to be showing His love, His mercy, His kindness, and His forgiveness to the world. That is our job, and that is part of what it means to be chosen. I'm going to close today with this thought. I'm going to ask everybody to stand just for a moment. We've talked about 2020 being one of those years that just keeps hitting. It just keeps punching and punching and punching. And just when we, we think that we're starting to get our heads clear, another blow lands. And it's getting exhausting, I know. It's getting just exhausting right now. 
So I want to close today with this thought. You are chosen. And as chosen people, you have a promise that we've already read, but I'm going to pray it over you this morning. Because I think it will help you, I know it will help you walk through these next few months with a greater sense of peace, a greater sense of love, and a greater courage to stand up for your faith. This comes from Romans chapter 8, the last couple of verses. Lord God, I just ask that you pour this into everyone's heart this morning, that you make this a statement of faith for every person here so that they can walk as bold as lions through this jungle that has been this year. Let their roar be your roar and let the forces of darkness flee before them as they stand on this promise. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let that promise cement itself into their souls, into their spirits, and into their minds. And let them trust it, let them walk it, and let them live it before a world that desperately needs to hear it themselves. Let them walk as the chosen of God. Lord God, I thank you for your people, and I ask that you bless them now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, and thank you for coming today. We'll see you next week for the, uh, the solemn assembly.